from Revelation chapter 12, verse 7 to 12. Hear the word of the Lord. Now, war arose in heaven. Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated. And there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives even unto death. Therefore, rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath, because he knows that his time is short. You may be seated. In World War I, the luxury liner Queen Mary was converted into a warship. Uh, Originally equipped to hold 2,000 passengers and 1,000 crew, It carried as many as 16,000 troops at a time. It was outfitted with anti-aircraft guns, hospital areas, medical stations, and, of course, thousands of bunks and hammocks. After the war, it was converted back into a luxury liner and retired from service in 1967. It is now berthed in Long Beach, California, as a hotel. It now houses museums and restaurants. Half its engines have been removed, as well as three out of four propellers. The church in our culture has been compared to the Queen Mary, lying in the docks, all about comfort, when it should be a ship at war. Now, I like docks. I like restaurants. I don't think... Don't like swimming so much, but like deck chairs with a good book in my hand. I enjoy comfort. And who doesn't? But if the enemy has us in his sights, are we safe in our deck chairs and in our restaurants? If we take a hit, are we going to go to the tennis courts? Or do we hope there's a metal station close by? Revelation 12 and 13 are a picture of war. And as I said last week, it's a war in which we play a part. We are soldiers. Last week we saw that the wrath of the Lamb has come to an end from a human viewpoint. And now in chapter 12, John takes up the tale from a heavenly perspective. And he begins with the story of Israel and the birth of the church, the woman and the dragon. And that's where we'll pick it up today. 
with the account of what has been called the unholy trinity, the dragon, beast number one and beast number two. So we'll start with the dragon. After the woman gives birth in the first part of chapter 12, there arose, in, uh, arose a war in heaven. Again, this is not capital H, heaven, but the heavenlies, the realm, the spiritual realm. And Michael and his good angels fight against the dragon and his bad angels. And it didn't look like this. Nor did it look like this. But these are angels with swords. These are warriors. This is war. And the great dragon and his angels are thrown down. Now, who is the dragon? He is the ancient serpent who first tempted Adam and Eve. He is called the devil from the Greek for slanderer. Satan from the Hebrew for the enemy. He's this deceiver of the whole world. First Timothy calls what happened in Eden deceit. And Jesus said that Satan has nothing to do with truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Now, how does he deceive? By looking good, not evil. And more on that in a second. He's thrown down to the earth, not literally, as in heaven is up and earth is down, but he no longer fights the angels. His sphere of activity is among men. And then a doxology is pronounced. Now the kingdom of God and the authority of his Christ have come. Why? The accuser has been thrown down. Do you remember the story of Job? God calls the angels before him to give an account of their activities. And Satan, of course, being a fallen angel, but an angel nonetheless, who is accountable to God, is among them. And he accuses righteous Job of being righteous only because God has been good to him. But if his life falls apart, then, says Satan, see how this faith stands up. Or in Zechariah chapter 3, the high priest stands before the angel of the Lord, and Satan stands there to, to, quote, to accuse him. Well, now he can't do that anymore. Why not? Because Christ died and rose and ascended, and those things which form the basis of Satan's accusations have been cleansed, washed white in the blood of the Lamb. Satan has nothing to accuse us of. Not to God, anyway. But see, he is a deceiver. So he accuses us, not to God, he can't. But he accuses us to ourselves. God doesn't accept you. You've got to try harder. God forgives, but even he can forgive you for doing that. You're useless. How can you call yourself a Christian? Look inside your heart. But John, who recorded the revelation, wrote in his first letter these life-giving words. By this, we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. For whenever 
our hearts condemn us, whenever our hearts condemn us, God is greater than our hearts, and he knows everything. When Satan accuses us, and our hearts lean toward his lies, and they are lies, no, God has forgiven me in Christ, and he will not cast me out. And if God says I'm forgiven and acceptable to him, I'm not going to be arrogant enough to tell him he's wrong. And you shouldn't either, Satan, so shut up and leave me alone. Satan has nothing to accuse me of. He's got absolutely no basis for accusation against you. In fact, the sin that you commit next week is already forgiven. So acknowledge that. Tell Satan to shut up and keep looking to Jesus. Because rather than facing Satan's accusations, God's people have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. That's how we conquer evil. It's not by our own strength in the face of temptation and evil, but by our testimony concerning the blood of the Lamb. The death of Christ is enough. You can even kill me, but I still win. Because Christ's death and resurrection means that though I die, I will emerge out the other side never to die again. In verse 11, they love not their lives even unto death. When the communists came to power in China, they tried to get Christian students to recant their faith and become communists. And when that wouldn't work, they embarked on a campaign of harassment, getting their communist students to isolate them, to make them an object of hate and scorn, and that didn't work. So the communist authorities in the area gathered 200 Christian students and calling one of them forward, the communist leader said, a few months ago, you identify yourself as a Christian. What about now? And the young woman, young woman replied, I used to think that the message of Jesus Christ was true. And now I've been exposed to communism and seen your hate and your violence. And now I know that the message of Jesus Christ is true. And she immediately had her head cut off with a single stroke. Then a second student was called forward, knowing that the name, the name of Jesus would mean instant death. What would you do? She named the name of Christ and gave him honor, and she was immediately decapitated. Every one of the 200 students were killed that day. You immediately think of the 21 Christians beheaded in Libya just two weeks ago, targeted because they were a people of the cross. But it was they who conquered, not ISIS, not the dragon, the martyrs. Verse 12. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them, because the dragon has been cast down from there, but woe to the earth and the sea, 
the realm of men, where the two beasts will arise from. So having failed to devour the child in the early part of chapter 12, and having failed to destroy his mother, recapped at the end of chapter 12, the dragon in fury makes war against the rest of her offspring on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus, i.e., the people of the cross. And now chapter 13 explains how he goes about that war. 13 verse 1, And I, John, saw a beast arising out of the sea. The sea in the Bible is always a picture of evil and chaos. So hence in the new Jerusalem, the new heaven and the new earth, the sea was no more. The beast had ten horns and seven heads and ten, ten diadems or crowns and blasphemous names on his head. And this is just like the dragon, except the beast have, has ten diadems and the dragon has seven. And we're going to talk about that in a few weeks. Verse 2, the beast that I saw was like a leopard. His feet were like a bear's and his mouth was like a lion's mouth. Now, Daniel 7, Daniel has a vision somewhat similar to this that we won't take time to walk through now. But the beast of Revelation is a composite of the beasts of Daniel. And in Daniel, the beasts are the kings of kingdoms. And it might make sense to consider the Revelation beast also as a king of a kingdom. And taking the various visions of Daniel and taken to whom the book of Revelation was addressed, this is pretty clearly the king or Caesar of the Roman Empire or the empire itself. And biblical scholars are pretty much agreed on that point. And this would have um, pretty particular meaning to Revelation's first readers. Christians at the verge of experiencing great suffering at the hands of imperial Rome. But the, uh, the specifics of the beast in his description, of course, has been the subject of much, much debate. Is this the king or the kingdom? If a king, what's Caesar? What is literal? What is symbolic? Or like much of Revelation, both. But some things are clear. Whatever or whoever this beast is, it acts on behalf of the dragon. To the dragon, to it, the dragon gave his power and his throne and great authority. Whoever or whatever it is, it sets itself against God and his people, and it is permitted to win against God's people for a time. Whatever and whoever it is, it has the allegiance of every tribe and people and nation and language. Does that sound familiar? Then he sees a second beast arising out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb and it spoke like a dragon. It looks like Satan, looks like Jesus, but speaks like Satan. It appears Christian, I think, but it's not. Satan and his demons often appear as angels of light. They deceive by appearing good, as he said earlier, 
but they are not. They deceive by saying things like, follow your heart, or that's just who I am. They deceive by saying things like, as long as I don't do it, it's okay, or I couldn't help it. They deceive by saying things like, my neighbor's worse than I am, or I'll make a change tomorrow. Things that we have all wrestled with. The beast, number two, exercises the authority of the first beast. It performs miracles to deceive those on earth. It tells a to make an image of the first beast and makes the image speak. It introduces a mark on the forehead or the right hand that allows people to buy or sell. The mark is the number, 666, but is a number of a man. Now, the number of the beast, 666, is pretty certain that the number stands for a name. There was a kind of code that assigned numeric values to letters, to letters of the alphabet. In Pompeii, uh, someone had graffitied, I love her whose number is 545. So it almost certainly did not stand for a symbol in the end times. So those who have seen 666 as being credit cards or and UPC symbols and the implanted microchips or whatever the next thing is will likely be wrong. But who is it? Is it Latin for the Emperor Nero? Or Hebrew for Nero? Is it Greek for the beast? Is it some end times figure or both? Is it the Roman Empire? Is it a Latin code transformed? transposed over the Hebrew alphabet. Whatever 666 means, it had meaning for its first century readers. But that doesn't really matter to us. What does matter in chapters 12 and 13 is this is war. Who cares whether the man pointing a gun at you is a lieutenant or a sergeant? And whether it's the first century Or 1,400 years before that, there are a lot of parallels between Revelation and the time of the Exodus from Egypt. Or whether it's Christian, Christian history, whether it's the present day, it has always been war. Evil has always been at war against God, against the Lamb, against his people. And in this great battle between good and evil in the spiritual realm, which plays out on earth, we are soldiers. Chapter 12, verse 7. Now roar arose in heaven, Michael's and his angels fighting against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back was he was defeated. Verse 11, God's people have conquered him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. Verse 12, woe to you, earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath. Verse 17, the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war against the rest of her offspring. 
13, verse 2. To the beast, the dragon gave his power and throne and great authority. Verse 5 and 6. The beast was given a mouth uttering haughty and blasphemous words. Blasphemy is against God. Verse 7. It was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. Verse 12. The second beast makes the earth worship the first beast. Verse 13, and causes all to be marked so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark. This is the language of violent, ongoing war. It's not just fighting. It's war, complete with the use of power to deceive and oppress people. It's a war of weapons, but it's also a war of words. It's an economic war. It's total war, a war of systems. It's ongoing, and it includes us. We often forget that we are at war, but we are. We might not recognize our enemy, but we have one. He might have horns like a lamb. He might look a lot like Jesus, but he speaks like a dragon out of the overflow of the heart. The mouth speaks. The enemy might be the church that is more concerned with comfort in the docks rather than being a warship. The enemy might cause you to believe the lies underneath all sins, the lies of me first or I want or poor me. The enemy might be another culture or religion that makes explicit war on the people of a cross. The enemy might be our own anti-God culture. The enemy might be in our own hearts. The enemy might divide the army, turning us against ourselves. But there is an enemy. And we have only one weapon. Only one. But it's enough. It's always been how God's people has stood firm. The blood of the Lamb. It's by his death that he made a public spectacle of the powers of evil. And this is our testimony, our testimony that the enemy is a retreating enemy. Our enemy that in life or in death, we are Christ. Our testimony that quite literally, come hell or high water, we will prevail. It's all by the blood of the Lamb. So, do you cling to blood of the Lamb? In temptation, do you look to the cross and find his power is enough? Do you prepare for battle with the word about the Lamb in prayer in the Lamb's name? It's all because of the blood of the Lamb that we can stand victorious. And so chapter 14, when the war is done, God's people are with the Lamb. They have his name and his Father's name on their foreheads, not the mark of the beast. They sing a new song that no one can learn. It's for them alone. They, we, have experienced something that no one else has. Not angels, not the four leaming creatures, not those who follow the beast. Just us. And that's redemption. 
We sing redemption's song. Verse 14, verse 4. It is these who have not deviled themselves with women, for they are virgins. This is not a statement about sex or women. It goes back to the Hebrew practice of men, quote, keeping themselves from women. Who did this? Soldiers. When they were at war. Guess what? We are soldiers. We are at war. We are people of the cross. We conquer by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of our testimony. So the Queen Mary, the church in the docks and not at war, the metaphor breaks down. There is no boat in the docks. We're on the open sea, but are we a warship or a yacht? Unfit for war and an easy target. Do we have hospitals and medical stations to care for our walking wounded or tennis courts and restaurants? Oblivious to the torpedoes exploding beneath our feet. Do we rescue people or do we turn a page? In the midst of war, do soldiers want to be on our boat or off it? Do we think it's our boat? Or is it the boat of Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God? Who are we? Who are we? We're undergoing a process to discover, to discover what God wants us to do, where, where he wants us to go. I hope we all realize that we are a warship and not a yacht. High grade fives and sixes. Let's pray. Oh, Captain, my Captain, our Lord, the one from whom we receive our marching orders, we will follow you. We will march onward as to war. Please purify our minds and our hearts from those things that would cloud our judgment, that would cause us to see things blurry. Give us clarity to see the world around us, to see the spiritual realm, to see where there is attack, and to defend in the name of Jesus, to defend our friends, to defend ourselves, to defend the church against the enemy and his demons. Help us to remember that we are at war. In Jesus' name, amen.